We've been studying a number of passages in the New Testament that have the little phrase, one another, inserted in them. And uh, it began back in John chapter 13 and then 15 where Jesus Christ is teaching his disciples and those of us who follow him to love one another. And he said, first of all, love one another as I have loved you. And then he proceeded to say, by this will all people know that you really are my disciples. I mean, it's the mark of authentic discipleship that we love one another. So he's very serious about it. And then as you proceed through the New Testament, when you encounter that little phrase, one another, it very often has other verbs attached to it. Verbs that would say to us things like this, pray for one another, or bear patiently, uh, be patient with one another, encourage one another. Uh, all kinds of commands that are attached to this. There are actually over 70 one another passages in the New Testament. Now, if we took just one a week, I mean, that would be... Uh, you know, a full year and a half, and I promise you we're not going to do that, although it would be a great study for you to engage in personally. So we've been sampling some of these, and when we came to Ephesians 5.21 just a couple of weeks ago, we were noting that God's call at this particular point, He, he wants to establish a, a very different kind of ethic for His community of faith, for His family. And the command in Ephesians 5.21 is that all of us should submit ourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. And so ultimately, Christ is the centerpiece of all of this, and each of these one another commands flow out from our relationship to Him. And you can't be in relationship with Jesus and not be in relationship with His people. That's why for some who say from time to time things like this, well, my faith in Jesus is a very personal thing. I get it, but that doesn't equate with a private thing. You don't just have a relationship with Jesus all by yourself and kind of let the world go on and do whatever it wants to, or let the church go on and do what it wants to. No, He saved you and rescued you from your sin in order to bring you into a relationship with Him and others. And so that's what this study is all about. Now, last week, we pressed on from Ephesians 5.21, and we actually skipped over three verses that we'll come back to today, and we looked at how that kind of of mutual submission and love in, in these relationships around us begin to work themselves out. And in particular, the command that we spent time looking at last week was for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And we said there are three particular characteristics of that kind of Christ-like love. The first is sacrifice. He laid down his life for his bride. And as Christian husbands, we're called to lay down our lives for our brides. The second component of that love is that it is a sanctifying love. And in Ephesians 5, you read that Jesus washes his bride with the water of the word and prepares her for that beautiful day of, of presentation, the holy wedding that we just sang about, where we as the church will be presented to Jesus as his spotless, blameless, perfect bride. And all of us long for that day, don't we? For two reasons at least. One, we look in the mirror and we go, oh man, we are so flawed and imperfect physically. But we know that even more than just that physical imperfection that we see in the mirror, we, we know that we're just, we're not yet what we ought to be inside. But the glory of Christ's love is that he is sanctifying us. Whether you see it or not on any given day, if you are in faith and you are resting in Jesus Christ and, and you've put all of your hope in him, he is in the process of remaking you. And, and you're gonna be presented one day in glory 
And you and I will look at ourselves as part of the church and say, look at this. Who would have ever imagined we could be this spectacular? And more than that, Jesus will say, look at you, my beautiful bride. You're finally everything I created you to be. It's gonna be a great day. So it's a sanctifying love. The third component of his love, it's a strengthening love. He nourishes and cherishes us. Now that's a high standard to live up to for every husband, isn't it? And, and there were several wives who were pretty much giving me high fives on the way out last week, like way to go. And then some turned around and said, I don't think I'm coming back next week when you talk about wives. And I do intend to uh, look at verses 22 to 24 today, but I've gotta tell you that in my study this week, the Lord surprised me. Because I, I was still wrestling with that sense, both as husband and as pastor, saying, you know, these are real commands that we're called to uh, practice. We affirm them by faith, and then we put them into practice. But the surprise this week is how the Lord was just revealing to me, and, and I've, I think I've seen shades of this before, but I don't think it's ever come into this kind of clarity for me personally. And this is what I'm hopeful will be a great blessing and help and, and actually push this thing of, being a godly husband or a godly wife in, into a greater realm, if I can put it that way. Because these commands are so much more than just, this is what I want you to do, as God speaking into us, so go do it. Um, he, he's actually, I, I think he's actually showing us how the gospel addresses a deeper problem. Because you know, at the end of the day, many of our marriages are actually marked by ongoing conflict and difficulty and challenge. And as a matter of fact, every married couple here says, yep, marriage is harder than I ever imagined. It's more work than I think is reasonable. You know, and, and whether you said I do two months ago or two decades ago or 56 years, that's what the Hayes celebrated. Anybody else beyond 56 years? Are they like, you know, the, the veteran married couple here? You know, when you stood at the altar and you said, I will or I do, however your vows went, I mean, you had high expectations and hopes, didn't you? And it, because you had concluded that your life would be better with this person if you, just, if you combined all your assets and resources and hopes and dreams. And, and I mean, you weren't looking for a fairy tale romance, really. Yeah, you hope there'd be some moments, right? But if we can be really honest, didn't you hit some moments where you're like, I never dreamed marriage could be this bad. <laughs> yeah, that's nervous laughter as well as affirming <laughs> laughter, isn't it? Why? Why is something that we hold in honor, and we should because Hebrews 13 even says marriage is honorable. Why, why can it be such a difficult and challenging relationship you know what happened is recorded in Genesis 3 and we're actually going to go back there um, yeah I already did that I suddenly realized I'm preaching without any, any visuals up there I think it's important for us to go back to Genesis because Paul does in this passage and not only take a look at God's first design, but even what happened after that. And we're going to explore the fall as it's recorded in Genesis 3 today because I think this gives us really good perspective on our marriages. And, and Joel Beakey, who's a pastor and author, uh, 
wrote some very helpful words. I'm actually gonna read a little more than what I could fit on the screen. So those little three ellipsis marks in the middle, just bear with me because I'm gonna add a few things there, but still the essence of, uh, the substance of the quotation is there for you. Limiting the extent of the fall by exempting some aspect of man's being from its effects opens the way for fallen man to be his own savior. If his intellect is not darkened, then he can find salvation by the use of reason and improve himself through education. If his will is not enslaved, then man has the final say on his salvation, quite apart from God's will. If man's body does not bear the marks of the fall, then defects, deformities, disease, aging, and death are natural and normal for our race, not evils to be opposed and overcome or enemies Christ died to defeat. Let us ask God to show us ever more profoundly the tragic results of our fall. And here's the key phrase I want to get to, that we might understand ever more profoundly the amazing wonders of the gospel. And I think that may have been the missing element. Even last week, though, I I preached in good faith and think that I was accurate to the text, but I'm not sure I made it crystal clear that the hope of your marriage Husbands, that you would love your wife as Jesus loves the church. And the hope of your marriage, wives, is that you could actually be the picture of the bride, actually goes straight back to Jesus and the power of his gospel as it operates in us and through us. It's not simply a matter of you saying, I'm going to love my wife like Jesus loves the church and then going out and doing it. You've got to experience powerful, transformational grace as a man because you were born in sin. You're broken from the inside out. And what's inside is partly the problem in your marriage because it keeps coming out. Same for wives. Your hope of being the picture, the beautiful an accurate picture of a church that gladly submits to the leadership of Jesus and shows respect by worship services like this or even daily service through the week is not that you just resolve in your soul as a woman, I will obey God, I will do what is right, I will honor the word of God, but rather that you begin to experience the grace of God as it powerfully transforms you from what you were, a descendant of your mother Eve, who was broken by the fall. And all of that personal brokenness that's recorded for us in Genesis 3 gives us perspective on our marriage struggles today, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, which also occurs in Genesis 3 and and just swells so beautifully into these commands of Ephesians 5, gives us greater hope than we ever imagined, even for marriages that are broken at this moment or struggling. That's what I'm desperate for you to see. So let's work our way back to the beginning. In Ephesians 5, verse 31, your Bibles are open there. I want you to notice something that Paul goes all the way back to Genesis 2. And when we read these words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I've underlined one flesh because that's a really important comment or or truth. Paul's quoting Genesis 2, 24. Why would he go all the way back there? Well, this comes at the tail ends of the commands. First to the wives, submit, husbands, love, and then he's gonna summarize that again. He's reminding us that from the beginning, God had a particular design and plan for marriage. And sin really broke it up. And then verse 32, this mystery is profound, and you won't find this in Genesis 2. I think it was there because I think it was in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world, but this is where Paul presses us a little deeper and reveals the the wise 
design of God for marriage. This mystery is profound. What mystery? One flesh. How, how can any two separate individuals become one? He says, I'm referring, I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. There's a greater mystery. I, I can kind of wrap my head around how two people can come together in this covenant relationship of marriage and, and form a one flesh unit, a one create one household. But how does God become one with mankind? Part of the way we understand that is through marriage. So that's, that's kind of the point we're getting to, but we gotta go all the way back. So open your Bible, or, or turn, your Bible is already open. Uh, go all the way back to Genesis 1. And, and just a couple of very big and broad points that I want you to think through with me. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, and you should do it, even this afternoon, it would be a great thing, maybe after lunch, right before you, you know, drift away into that nap or you know, whatever your Sunday afternoon routine includes, just maybe read through Genesis 1 and 2 to see all of this flow together. But you know, marriage was created by God as a blessing. It's part of even the culmination of his six days of, of creative work, and what a spectacular, spectacular six days that was. And at the end of Genesis 1, verse 31, God sees, you can read the text there on the screen before you, everything that he has made, and this is his observation and assessment. Behold, it was very good. Now, chapter 2, he actually goes back and fills in a little more of the blanks because at the end of Genesis 1, we're reading about the creation of the first man and the first woman, and Genesis 2 actually tells you a little more detail about that. And as Moses, who is the, the author of this book, is recording for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how that unfolded, you read things like this in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then the Lord says something amazing. Verse 18. It is not good. It's the only occurrence in the whole creation of Cal of, of something that exists that God says it's not good. It's not good what? That the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And ladies, I know you have been exploring this in your uh, equip class, and I think Kristen plans to have a little deeper discussion on some of this today, so I hope all of you are planning to stay for that next hour. But do you know that, that word helper, and I say this especially for the benefit of men, it's not domestic help, like you would hire a maid to come in and clean up after you or do some, get somebody to do your laundry or grocery shopping. Um, and your wife may do all those things, and praise God for wives who are very capable uh, in, in so many realms. But the word helper is actually a, a word that is used with reference to God himself. It's divine help. It's help that Adam needs. And the second word that you see in the text, a helper fit for him, or even some of your English versions may say a helper meet for him. And somehow through the years, those two words kind of got shoved together, and it's okay to, to refer to a helpmate or help meet, but they're actually two separate words. Helper is the first one, and the second one tells you what kind of helper, a helper who is complementary to him, perfectly suited for him. It's a partnership of equals. 
distinct from one another in gender, distinct even in some of the roles that they will fulfill, but they are co-regents at this point. So it's not that, you know, the man got the top rank or the top rung, you know, on the on the corporate ladder, and, you know, the woman, she, she's close behind. Nope, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, heart to heart, soul to soul. It's quite a picture. And that in and of itself is what helps us to understand the nature of what Moses means and when he says in, in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You know, Jesus reinforced marriage in Matthew 19. The the Pharisees come and ask him a question about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce a woman for any cause? And and he doesn't actually want to get mired down in, in those little legalistic nuances. What he does is drive the conversation all the way back and says, from the beginning it was not so. Actually, the first command that Moses gave was not a qualifier about when you can get divorced and when you shouldn't get divorced. The first thing Moses ever said, Genesis 2.24, is a man should leave father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they should be one flesh. That's where Jesus goes. And so that's where Paul is going, even in Ephesians 5. So marriage was created by God as a blessing. It was intended to be a blessing not only for the couple, a blessing for the entire planet. But here's the reality. Look at Genesis 3 with me. Marriage was marred by the fall. And oh, what a marring. What a marring. When you read the account of how, how so quickly they, they chose to sin, Eve, Eve was deceived. A little distinction here. Eve was deceived. Adam walked into it knowing exactly what he was doing, which actually makes his rebellion seemingly, if you read the text here in Genesis and all the way through the New Testament, what Paul says in 1 Timothy, it appears that Adam holds a greater culpability of responsibility. Maybe I should say it that way. So it's not that Eve gets off as if, oh, she didn't mean to. No, she knew, but, but she got deceived. She got manipulated a little bit. Adam wasn't. And he actually seems to bear greater responsibility. And and what happens in Genesis 3.18, you see several things suddenly introduced to this perfect world with perfect people in perfect relationship with their God. You you see, first of all, shame. In verse 7, they knew they were naked. And they make this feeble attempt to sow fig leaves. It's the first attempt at, at covering that shame that we feel, that exposure, that sin works in us. The second thing is alienation. Their first act was to run from God. But you also see them starting to drift from one another. Sin alienates. Here's a third uh, marring. They're, they feel guilt and fear. When God comes to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? And, and then Adam says, I heard the sound of you or your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Oh, you just sing just catastrophic marring. And finally, self-righteousness and self-justification. Look at verse 12 if you're in Genesis 3. As God continues to confront them and probe, Adam does the most remarkable thing. Verse 12, he says to God, this this is his self-righteous self-justification, the woman whom you gave to be with me. How's that for blame shifting? And then he goes on to say, she 
gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So he's really pointing a finger at God and at Eve, same time. Typical man, right? <laughs> Guys, you want to know why your default response is to justify yourself when your wife disagrees with you or even brings something to your attention or it happens in the workplace? Because you're descended from Adam. He, as our original father, and every father since then has passed it down, and every son born on planet Earth is going to have that same self-righteous, self-justification default mode. Well, so God looks at Eve and says, Eve, what about you? And she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So there's also a bit of self-righteous, self-justification on her part. And you know, when you get married, you don't think about it, but you actually carry this marring into that relationship. A lot of you have carried a great deal of shame into marriage, various reasons. Could have been your own sin, could have been things that you've, sh- you've suffered at the hands of other people. And you want to be one flesh with that spouse, but the reality is sin, as it exists in your soul, is always seeking to drive you apart from the people who are nearest and dearest to you. It's always operating. And you've got your own set of guilt, you've got your own fears, and you've got your own self-righteousness and self-justification. And when you're standing at the marriage altar and and you're making your promises, and, and most of us made them as sincerely and with as much integrity as we possibly could, but you're not thinking about how marred you are individually and how marred marriage is because of sin. After this conversation, God goes further and he marks them. We can call them consequences, but marriage is marked by the fall. It's interesting that the word curse is used with reference to the serpent and to the ground. God doesn't actually say to Adam and his wife, you are cursed, but there are consequences. And if you look at Genesis 3.16, Again, this this has everything to do with with our marriages right now in this present age. He says several things to the woman. First of all, there's going to be pain in childbearing. It's going to be a sorrowful experience. How tragic because this is part of her distinct role. Both of them were created by God uh, to exercise dominion in the world and be productive. Adam's orientation is toward the ground. Her orientation is toward children. And now the thing for which she is created created is going to be marked by sorrowful, suffering, pain. Second thing you read, and this this is an eye-opener for us. Look at the end of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, if you study this a little more in depth, what... Moses means what the Lord is saying here. Your desire uh, shall be to, to your husband. Um, the, it, many of you are reading the ESV. It, the English Standard Version is the, the, the copy of the text that we insert in those chair racks in front of you. Uh, other English translations don't insert that word contrary to because if you go back to the original language and you look at it, it just simply says your desire will be to your husband. So scholars, commentators, pastors, teachers, followers of Jesus have long studied, what does he really mean? Could it have a positive meaning? 
And the term is used in the Song of Solomon with reference to uh, the, the lover longing to be with the loved one. That's a positive use of the term desire. But the context seems to be of such that it's a, it's a negative desire. And that's where I'm inclined to believe that what God is saying to her, and, and I think you, the, the uh, editors of the English Standard Version are trying to capture that, that the desire will actually be contrary to her husband. And then you see the correlating thought to that is the next little phrase, he shall rule over you. How did they go from being co-regents to being in competition, to put it politely? It's sin. It's sin. One author states that the woman's urge is not a craving for her man or whatever he demands, but an urge for independence. Indeed, a desire to dominate her husband. but he shall rule over you, is what God says. And so, and I I quote another author here, it's usually argued or determined that rule represents harsh, exploitive subjugation, which so often characterizes woman's lot in all sorts of societies, and just think about it. I mean, if you're a citizen of this nation as a a, a lady, you actually enjoy more extensive, greater rights than the vast majority of your fellow sisters on planet Earth. And I know that generations of women preceding have had to fight for things like the right to vote, which to our generation, I mean, it just seems unimaginable, doesn't it? How how could we not let ladies vote? They talk about the glass ceiling in the corporate world disparity between incomes and wages. And and those things are real. I think it's a reflection of this. But how much worse is it for some of your sisters who live in in nations that not only dominate their women, but continue to subject them to all kinds of spiritual and emotional and economic and physical abuse? It's reflected all across planet Earth, isn't it? Adam and Eve go from being co-regents with God and partners in this perfect life and perfect world to being competitors and rivals, each having to guard against the sin and exploitation of the other. They thought that fig leaves would help you know, hide some of that guilt and fear and alienation that they feel. Wait until they spend a little more time with one another. They're going to want to put walls between themselves because God never hurt his people the way a husband and wife can hurt one another. What are the consequences for the man? Look at verses 17, 18, and 19. God says, first of all, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and that word listen also has the meaning throughout the Old Testament uh, for obey. You've listened to the voice of your wife. Her voice contradicted the voice of God that Adam had heard earlier. And this is what Paul refers to in 1 Timothy 2.14. Adam was not deceived. It's like he processed what she was suggesting, knew what he was doing. That's part of what makes it so grievous. And then God says to him, in pain you shall eat. Same term, she's going to bear children through pain. He's actually going to eat and provide for his family through pain, through sorrow. The ground will actually resist 
the dominion of this man. Thorns and thistles will now grow. And, you know, your ongoing battle as mine with the weeds in your yard is a testimony to what God said to Adam way back then. Goat's heads are new uh, evil to us. You know, we, don't, we didn't have those back in South Carolina. So moving out here a year ago, you know, I, I, we popped a tire uh, in our little hand truck that we were using to unload our furniture. My dog started limping around. I'm like, what is wrong with Bristol? I look at her paw. She's got this, this thorny piece of evil lodged there. And then I was walking barefoot out to get my mail and stepped on one of those. And I'm you know, hopping around in the driveway going, what in the world? And, and I had a bruise on my heel for days after that. A little goat's head. Well, those didn't pop up until this moment. And those are reminders to us. The sin was real. It was devastating. And men, whether it be the office or the field, the classroom or the assembly line, the environment for which God created us and to which he has called us, even at this point, is going to resist us. That's what thorns and thistles are represented by. That's hard for us, isn't it? In pain you shall lead. Here's the second consequence. By the sweat of your face. Sweat emphasizes how hard Adam will have to work. And then God says, to dust you shall return. It's a sentence of death. That's the most grievous consequence. Far from being a reign of co-equals over the remainder of God's creation, the relationship now becomes a fierce dispute with each party trying to rule the other. The two who once reigned as one, one flesh, attempt to rule each other. Does that sound like your marriage? It's mine, not every moment of every single day, but very often I, I'm standing there like nose to nose with my wife, at least in spirit, thinking to myself, I am going to get my way. And she's on the other side of it going, I'm going to get my way. And so do you. You see why I say it's not enough that we just go, oh, God has different commands for us, so... You know, if I just love her like Jesus loves the church, then, then, then she'll come to my side of the, you know, argument or disagreement or opinion. And wives, you're over there saying, you know, if I just would submit to him and respect him, he'd start loving me like Jesus loves the church. Is that the gospel? When has obedience ever saved any of us? What I'm so thankful for is that in the middle of this passage, go back to Genesis 3, 15. God says, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, that is the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what we call the first gospel. What Adam and Eve need at this moment is not a corrected understanding and a commitment to obey God's law. What they need is a rescuer. And God says, I'm going to send one. And we know, and if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, I'm just going to kind of let the, you know, you can kind of read to the end of the story and know how it's going to turn out. The, the seed that God is promising is Jesus. Only Jesus is the hope for your marriage. You know Christ-like love is not the hope for your marriage today? Do you know that church-like submission and respect is not actually the hope for your marriage today? 
It's this promised rescuer. And Christ saves us to restore the blessing of marriage. I love this picture. Can you see it well enough to see they're wearing one sweater? That's the closest image I could find that kind of communicated one flesh. That's a sweet moment. I can't see their fingers if there are wedding bands down there. There's something in me that was like, they're not married. <laughs> I say that in part, too, because of my own experience. Not that I ever wanted to do this, but it would, I'm just going to put this out there. If any of you ever think that, oh, you know what? There's some really cute little holiday matching sweater thing. Let's get it for Danny and Kristen. My wife will not match me <laughs> under any circumstances. There have been occasions where we've kind of like put on similar Outfits, like, you know, an example would be, it was not long ago, we kind of like got up and got dressed at separate times, but we both had, I think it was like black t-shirt and jeans, and, and I could just see it. You know, I kind of walked in and saw her, and she's looking at me. I didn't even have to ask her at that point. I know I got to change. Because <laughs> we're not walking out of the house looking like, you know, the Bobsy twins. There's an old illusion for some of you. But you know what? God did intend us to be one. But sin did this. We're now rivals, competitors, sometimes enemies. And over time, you actually just shut it down and then you just start drifting away from each other. And beloved, that's, that was not God's original design and that is not what, where he wants to leave you. And that's why Jesus entered the world, not just to save you from your personal sins, to, to take away the guilt and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to give you the gift of eternal life and the assurance that one day you'd be in heaven with him, but actually he came to rescue you from every vestige of brokenness and your marriage is part of it. Christ saves us to restore the blessing of marriage. And this is what, as I just continue to meditate on Ephesians 5 this week, I realize, you know what? The commands come, but they actually come after he's been pouring the gospel into our hearts. And this will be another reading assignment. All right, if you finish finish Genesis 1 and 2 in, you know, like 10 minutes, because it won't take you long to read this afternoon, now go to Ephesians and read the whole book. And if you go back to chapter one, you'll be, begin reading of all the blessings that are ours as saints, as those who have put faith in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, are following him. Uh, but, but it's a reminder to us that we have to believe in him. And he calls us to believe. And some of you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Wish you could have been here last week. Some of you were. Oh, Ron, we're still savoring that. Nancy, man, mm, praise God. Ron was baptized right here testify to the fact that he's repented of his sins and put his faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by belief. You've got to believe in Jesus as a matter of first priority. And, and then if we can kind of skip ahead to chapter five, even in, in the context of that command to submit ourselves one to another, he's calling us to reverence him. Do you know what reverence means? You, you live in the fear of God. Not fear that he's gonna zap you with a lightning bolt from heaven, but just in awe that he is the great creator. He's sovereign over all. He gave you life. He calls you into relationship with himself. He does have commands that you are to obey, but he's everything. It's just that sense of awe and wonder that says he's God and I'm one of his creatures. 
And out of those calls to believe, to live in reverence to him, then he reminds us, and this is where we were at the outset, Ephesians 5.31, his creation design is that a man and woman would come together and become one. But we try to skip ahead and just create that oneness, thinking that obedience and commitment and resolve and discipline will get it. There's a place for all of that, but, but you realize that's futile. That, that's like trying to earn your way back into God's favor by saying, you know what, I um, thank you for the offer of the forgiveness of my sins, but I'm gonna work off my debt. So I'm just gonna obey you and serve you and love you. And, and he's saying, sorry, uh, that currency doesn't work in heaven's economy of grace. So he's saying, this is what I desire for you. You know, let me, I'm kind of retreating to that last point. You know, marriage problems are ultimately a God problem, and I don't mean they're his problem. I mean that there's either a wrong view of God in your heart, in your relationship, or you're not in right relationship with God, and that's why you keep getting ugly with your spouse and probably other people as well. And somewhere in, in all that mess, one or both spouses are likely not in submission or living in reverence to Jesus Christ. And so he reminds us of that creation design, but here's the last point I want you to think with, and so all of that, all of that in one sense is introductory, but I promise you, I'm I'm not gonna preach an equal amount of time that I just preached to get to this point. Jesus restores the creation blessing of marriage, and this is through the gospel. This is through his entrance into the world. You see, go back and look at verse 22 with me. It occurred to me this week, sorry, if you're still in Genesis, I, I mean Ephesians. Go, go all the way to the New Testament. I pulled my marker out, so I need a, a second to get over there myself. So as part of living a life that's worthy of our calling, the calling of salvation, God now says to us, Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's the specific command. And then he frames it and tells us about the relationships and roles. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Not a tyrant, but positioned by God in a role of leadership and love, as we're going to read. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And here's the assumption, all right? So husbands, don't don't just pound your wife with submit, submit, submit. You need to first pound your own soul with love, love, love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way. So a husband who is reverencing Christ is repenting uh, of ruling over her in that Genesis 3 kind of way, ruling over her as a tyrant rules over a subject. And now the act of faith is, he says, I'm going to actually love you in a Christ-like way. Do you see the repentance and faith lining up here? Repent of tyrannical rule 
believe and practice Christ-like love. And I'm gonna put some of these things up on the screen in just a moment. A wife who is reverencing Christ is repenting of the Genesis 3.16, setting her desires contrary to her husband, just opposing him for the sake of being independent and being your own person and doing your own thing. She's repenting of all that. And now she's, first of all, reverencing Christ. So in submission to him, she assumes the role that she, like her mother Eve, was initially created for, partnership with this man. Coming alongside saying, you know, God created me to be God-like help to you. How can I help you? And together, through the gospel and through this transformation of the forgiveness of our sins and a restoration that God begins to work, he, he assembles this broken unit and begins to make them one again. That's why there's, there is no more powerful unit on planet earth than a Christian husband and Christian wife who live in reverence to Jesus and live in this kind of right relationship one to another. It's awesome. And God knew it would be awesome and that's why he connected this whole uh, mystery of Christ and his church to it. And in his wisdom he said, there's no better way for my broken, sin uh, shackled image bearers on planet earth to see what Jesus and the church looks like than, than in a Christian marriage. In some ways, our marriages, when they're lived out like this, are the most powerful sermons that will ever be preached. I can exegete this passage as a pastor and preacher, but I can't dramatize it the way you as a Christian husband and Christian wife can do when you live in submission to God. So husbands, we're being called to repent of our fight for control and our, and our tendency toward tyranny in the home and submit to Jesus. And wives, you, you are being called to repent of striving against your husband, striving for control, and now join him in pursuing the thing for which you both are created. Ephesians 5.32 calls you to respect him. Your respect is a sign of your transformed heart and your submission to Jesus. It's an acknowledgement that you, with your husband, are created for something greater than self. And that brings us to this final thought. In, in this kind of marriage, he intends to reveal this mystery. So look at, com compare this again. This passage calls us to reverence Christ. Sin in Genesis 3 is all about rebellion against Christ, and some have continued to live in rebellion. Ephesians 5 speaks of mutual submission because we know we're under the lordship of Christ. Genesis 3 reveals sinful opposition. Ephesians 5 shows us husbands who love. Genesis 3 shows us a husband who will rule. Ephesians 5 shows us wives who submit. Genesis 3 shows us wives who oppose. Ephesians 5 shows, shows us that marriage ultimately is intended to image, and I use that as a verb, images Christ and the church. And Genesis 3 shows us a marriage that is broken and images that sin and brokenness. Do you see why I'm saying it's so much more than just saying, there's the command, go do it. And I really do, as we conclude the study this morning, this is a call not just to husbands and wives who are present, but, present, but to us as, as people, broken by sin, 
so marred and marked by its consequences that at times we say, I, I don't even know how to navigate this. We call on Jesus. And we beg him to change us from the inside out. And I know that as a man who looks at that command in one sense and says, it's impossible. I cannot love Kristen the way Jesus loves Kristen or the church. But the Lord still says, I call on you to do it. You don't get a pass. I get his grace. So men, first of all, I start with you. Can, can we just call on God today and say we are broken, sinful tyrants? And then add to that list whatever the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. And some of you are not tyrants, you know, like where you just storm and stamp around the house, but, but you just kind of withdraw from everybody else and that withdrawal is a form of tyranny. So whatever the Holy Spirit convicts you of, just repent of it and say, please forgive me. And then, in faith, you say, Lord Jesus, I, I not only need you to cleanse me from this sin, but I need you to empower me because this model of marriage that is the result, not just of creation, but the working of the gospel has to have Holy Spirit, gospel transformational power in it or it just won't work. So God, would you do that? We're asking him for a miracle, men. But he's a miracle working God. And then ladies, comparably, you, you need to repent of whatever sin is manifesting itself in your world right now. Some of you are wives, you have that role, and if you're honest, you'll say, you know what, I, I've been doing the very thing that Eve did, the consequence there of Genesis 3. It's all over my marriage at this point. I just seem to oppose my husband at everything. I mean, it's like, it, it doesn't matter where we are, what's going on, I'm gonna offer an alternative suggestion, and I know it drives him nuts. And actually, if, if I'm really honest at this moment, it's because I wanna be in control. Well, just repent of it. It is sin. It's ugly. But here's the beauty. God forgives. It says, I'll remember your sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far I separate your sins from you. And then you also, just in humility, say, God, I can't do this. It's not in my old nature to submit and respect, but you, are, you, have, you have given birth to a new nature in me. And so what you're calling me to do, I want to do. You know, if we start praying that individually, as men and women, God's gonna do great things. And then, beyond that, I'm just challenging husbands and wives, will you talk through this scripture? It's not about my sermon at this point. But would you talk through the scriptures and, and even begin at this point and say, how is our marriage showing the world a real uh, display of Christ in the church? Because that's the ultimate goal. It's not about the jobs that you have going at the moment. It's not about the educational path for your children. It's not about the house that you're you know, trying to keep up right now, the yard you're trying to maintain. All that stuff that fills up our schedule, that's, that's just stuff. But you, as a follower of Jesus, have been called to an eternally significant mission, and that is that you would image for the world Jesus and the church. And I, as we were getting ready this morning, I said to Kristen, we gotta talk about this because I'd, I'd been doing a little more final sermon prep. And, and so I'm just telling you straight up, I haven't actually talked as significantly and deeply with Kristen uh, about this particular point, evaluating how does our marriage show Jesus in the church, but we're gonna do it. So I'm asking you. Well, very quickly here, in addition to that, um, first of all, are you living in reverence for Christ? 
Number two, are you living in mutual submission to others? That's the big command in Ephesians 5.21. And then husbands and wives, are you committed to image, I'm using that word as a verb, to image or show Christ in the church by your marriage? Let's bow our heads here. Father, how we thank you that the commands are not given apart from the grace of the gospel. Our default mode is self-righteous, self-justification. Every man here wants to go the pathway of our father Adam at this moment and say, God, the woman you gave me is the real problem here. But that's as false today as it was for Adam. And the greatest problem in our marriages is us. Would you please forgive us of all of our sin? Both the actions that we have committed, the words that we have spoken, and of our negligence. And would you please restore and renew and, and recreate beautiful, grace-filled, spirit-empowered, one-flesh relationships here. Because we want our world to see the beauty of Jesus and his church. And there are many people living around us right now who who think they have a relationship with God, their creator, who think they have eternal life in their future, but they don't. And others who are completely oblivious to his glory. And we're just so broken. And we're broken by sin and we're broken over sin. Please have mercy on us. Would you put hope in the hearts of those who are here today saying, my marriage is beyond repair. Others who've had failed marriages in the past, they're struggling right now saying, oh God, what can I do at this point? And what every one of us can do, must do, needs to do, is to just cast ourselves into those loving arms of Jesus one day we're going to see you face to face. And for those who know the forgiveness of Jesus, who have begun to experience the transforming power, that is an awesome thought. It's a, it is a comforting thought. It's a humbling thought. But there are some here this morning, Lord, who don't have a personal relationship with you. Just take hold of their hearts right now and show them that you're offer to forgive their sins is real, it's sincere, it's full and complete, and your offer to save them by your grace is equally real and sincere. So Father, thank you for your presence with us, for your word, thank you for your Son, our Savior, and for the good news of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his power among us. Change us. Bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.